Welcome to the Demisery Podcast, where I, Liz Hansen, read essays I've written about confronting and moving on from loss, grief, and shame. My hope is to normalize conversations around miscarriage, mental health, and all kinds of losses and traumas that compound the older we get. After my own miscarriages, I wanted nothing more than to hear stories from women about how they made it through. So here's mine. Know that you're not alone and that there are many healing paths to pursue. Thanks for listening. Content warning. Topics include miscarriage, infant mortality, grief, and raw freaking emotion. Due date. Liz steps onto stage. The stage lights blind her. She can't see into the dark audience of one. A bellowing man voice says, Name and monologue, please. Liz Hansen, I'm auditioning for the role of sad woman. Um, This monologue is from a play I wrote called Miscarriages, Miscarriages. This is the scene where our heroine, Judy, learns she's pregnant after many miscarriages. Oh. My. God. It's a plus. It's a plus. A plus on this little plastic stick I hold before me. I'm pregnant. The delight quickly turns to dread. A moaning. Oh, why? Why, oh, why can't I be happy? Oh. Oh, that's right, because of all the times this news, this supposedly good news ended up as blood between my legs, a gushing stream of disappointment. I mean, I knew I'd have a baby shower. I just didn't think it would be between my legs. I got nothing but scrambled. Okay, okay, that's quite enough. <clears throat> Thank you. Next. Oh, uh, there, there's, there's more? I got what I needed. Thank you. But it, it gets more intense. There's there's more emotion I, I didn't get to. <laughs> that was plenty. Thank you. Please. Hun, clear the stage. She puts her hand above her eyes, trying to shield enough light so she can glimpse the man. You'll be sorry, sir. Sad woman was written for me. I'd be the best sad woman you'd ever know. Anniversaries and milestones related to miscarriages are painful because they are keen reminders of a sad loss. 
they point to a perceived void and an actual void. And the pointing deepens that void. It becomes an echo chamber of regret and shame about what you think you're missing out on. There's the anniversary of the loss, the anniversary of the due date, when the kid would be walking, talking, starting kindergarten, etc. And then there are the alienating holidays, Mother's Day, Father's Day, Bring Your Kid to Work Day, or just Monday, Tuesday, or Sunday. Any day can set off the sadness. April 22nd, 2016 was the baby's due date. And April 22nd also happens to be a common birthday in my family. My paternal grandmother, my oldest brother, my cousin's kid, and one of my best friends. And it's Earth Day, the day that celebrates the ultimate mother, Earth. So the due date made the baby seem faded and special, and it made the previous two miscarriages seem worth it, because now the baby, this baby, was expected on a seemingly auspicious day. I had to look at my email history and journal to remember what I did to fill the actual due date. The only thing I could find was a journal entry from our couples therapy a few nights before. April 19. In couples therapy tonight, Matthew said he couldn't live with my vulnerability. He doesn't want us to yell, but then realizes that it's not possible to define a limit an acceptable threshold of intensity. What is the level that's not acceptable? He won't say, which just makes me think that there is no version of vulnerability that he can accept. Our therapist told him my vulnerability isn't going to go away. Liz's vulnerability is not going away. imagine ever waking up and feeling so glad there wasn't a baby. No, wait, that's a lie. And this is where grief and pregnancy loss gets really confusing to feel and to explain. The way I've come to understand it is that grief makes you a time traveler, specifically an emotional time traveler, and you get lost in time, like you forecast so much into the future about the life you thought you were going to be living with the person that is gone and sometimes in your mind. You travel back to remember who you were before the loss and then you try to feel some semblance of control by blaming yourself for the loss. If only I'd done XYZ, then the sad thing wouldn't have happened. No matter what direction and time you go, you are full of sadness and rage and what ifs. And the real problem is We never know how long the what-ifs are going to last. We want answers. We want them to go away, but they never do. That's grief. The weekly emails from the Pregnancy Loss Support Group always begin, Dear Parents, 
This salutation bothers me. The whole point of the group, in my mind, is that I was denied parenthood. So I don't get it right away, but I'll start to as the months drag on and I live through the confusing parts of this particular kind of grief, of a sudden loss, when the shock subsides and one has to make sense of life again, how fleeting it is. I will come to understand that I assumed the role of parent the second I knew I was pregnant and began making choices with the baby's well-being in mind. You know, parenting. And hold your horses if you think I'm making some argument to support the ban of reproductive choice by saying life begins at conception. To the contrary, I am anti-trauma through and through. Any restrictions on reproductive freedom perpetuates cycles of trauma. To force a woman into unsafe situations is a human rights violation where you make the woman her own jailer. Her body and its associations become the abuser. So back to the group emails. They created a certain sting. Dear parents, dear parents, dear parents, dear babyless sad sack, dear empty womb, dear person who doesn't want to contemplate her body, dear dissociative human lady, dear person haunted by pregnant bellies in public, dear incredibly sad and exhausted woman, dear person who wonders if she'll ever want to have sex again. I guess how you feel about the word parent might depend on where you were in your pregnancy when you had the loss, or if you're thinking about another person, whether or not you wanted them to become a parent or think they would have been good at it. I was halfway through my pregnancy in theory. The baby died at around 14 or 15 weeks, we think, but we found out at 20 weeks. So I was five months into eating right and resting and moving my body and visualizing the baby reading all the books and watching all the videos and thinking about the baby all the time. If pressed at the time, I would have told you I considered myself less a parent and more of a flesh vessel that went on a hormonal roller coaster ride of terror, the longest haunted house ride. But addressing us as parents is correct, and here's why. And maybe this... There's this rush that you have that I had immediately after the loss that I had to move the fuck on or I was going to die, that I might kill myself. But I had to cycle through. I had to be a tough cookie, a good soldier, and all the other numbing metaphors that supposedly convey strength. I believe, I had to believe, that I was mostly over it, the loss. Also, who wants a tough cookie? I want all the cookies to be delicious cookies. Admitting the parental framework I'd been existing in for the last few months would mean that I would have to admit that I lost a child, and to do that would just be inconceivably sad. My name is Liz Hansen. Um, I'm here to audition for the role of not parent. Uh, this is from a play that I wrote called Miscarriages, Miscarriages. This is when Judy uh, realizes that she has and never will be a parent. Oh, sure. I've been pregnant just like all the moms out there. (laughs) Difference is me. 
I ain't got a baby to show for it. That's correct, Amundo. I'm not. I never will be a parent. Why? Oh, the babies, they never come to term. Some people say, no, you're a parent. You parented in the womb. But how, how could I have? Never once did I make a decision in the best interest of the life I was growing inside of me. Never once did I imagine the baby. No, I, I just treated it like all I had to do was pop the kid out and then I'd know what to do and then I'd start acting like a parent. Good thing I never took folic acid or ate omega-rich foods. I didn't abstain from caffeine or alcohol. I never did prenatal yoga or I never really moved my body at all. Yeah, I just, I just sat on the couch thinking about everything except the baby growing inside of me. It was like it never happened. Never once did I name the kid or practice swaddling a honey-baked ham. No, no. I, I never looked at baby clothes or nursery decor. No. So, yeah, I mean, when people say you were pregnant, you were already in the mindset of a parent. I mean, that means you were parenting. I, I say, I say baloney. You know, I, I miscarried. I'm not a parent. Uh, it's as simple as that. I, you know, I uh, don't have a kid. So, you know, how could I, how could I be a parent? I mean, no, nobody sees you as a parent. I'm not a parent. Uh, isn't that a parent? <laughs> uh, thanks, hon. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> so, so you liked it? Did you, did you like it? Did you like it? Do you, do you think, do you think, <clears throat> thank you. Can we get the next actress in here? Thank you. Here's my journal entry four and a half months after the demise, a few days after the baby's projected due date, April 25th, 2016. This past weekend was our due date, Friday. Sunday, I woke up thinking about what if there was a newborn to care for. I was so glad there wasn't a baby. I couldn't imagine a newborn bundle of needs. I've been through so much that taking care of myself is a tall enough order. I have a great life, and I am not a mom, and that's okay. Today, it's okay. <sighs> yes, I actually wrote that. I'd like to have a moment of silence for that journal entry as I tell it to fuck off and bury it. First off, it's bad writing. Secondly, I'm lying. I was trying to convince myself that I was so glad there wasn't a baby. It's like self-gaslighting. Minimizing. It's possible that on that day I may have felt okay. There were and continue to be days that are fine um, and those that are worse. But clearly, clearly this sentence says it all. I've been through so much that taking care of myself is a tall enough order. That was true. I was in survival mode. The doctors were not wrong about suicide risk after the kind of loss I experienced. They made me jump through ridiculous hoops to get the Ativan I needed to get through the five nights of terror after the demise and before the DNC, the abortion. And I didn't want to or try to kill myself, but it seemed like a very reasonable option. The pain and shock was so deep and loud in my head and in my body that I just wanted a reprieve. And the only way I could think my way to a reprieve was to ask, how do I get to the opposite feeling of what I'm feeling right now? And that was being the opposite of what I was, which was alive. 
So I saw being alive as the problem because as long as I was alive, I would wake up every day knowing that I was a traumatized person. The miscarriage I had at 20 weeks and the subsequent abortion and resulting hemorrhaging and hospitalization brought up loads of unresolved grief and anger around my childhood illness, colitis, and all the medical hell I've been through. I hate hospitals, but I surrender to them. I'm tired of my body finding itself on the crinkly clutches of that waxy paper on exam room tables. I sweat so much on that paper, an instant stress response, my anxiety dissolves it. The idea that it could serve as a layer of protection is absurd. It just clings to all the sweat on my body. And then I'm ashamed of my fear and nervousness and anxiety because nobody ever acknowledged it. It wasn't anything anyone else would show me how to look at. I see now I could have used guidance about how to look at that fear and look at that shame in the eyes. Like, didn't anyone notice how afraid I was that whole time? Oh, she sweat through the wax paper, is visibly scared and has an erratic breathing pattern. Everything's fine. How do you soothe a sick kid? How do you soothe a troubled adult? Is there language to do it? I wanted to become a pediatric gastroenterologist when I grew up, just so that I could add my much needed empathy to the industry. I suppose it was my first impulse toward an idea of reparenting. One day I'll give what I didn't get. As a kid, I already felt alienated because of my international hopscotching childhood And having a chronic illness added another layer of remove from other people who had a privilege they would never understand, health. And they wouldn't understand its opposite, medical vulnerability. And then I became more and more alienated from my body, the sicker I got. And I was this shame hole that doctors examined without spending time with my feeling body. My body was treated by doctors, my flesh body, but me, Liz, the sick person, was not treated or acknowledged. Liz's vulnerabilities are not going away. So the miscarriage brought all this medical suffering back into focus and my body became a vessel that unleashed the ghosts of colonoscopies past Abortions present and mental illnesses future, nothing felt good or calm or easy, and I had so much anxiety and trepidation and felt trapped in a body that didn't want to admit it wasn't pregnant anymore. I imagined an aura of a pregnant belly, secretly checking the what to expect type books to see what size vegetable the baby would be now if I was still pregnant. Oh, now it's a rutabaga. Now it's a double wide zucchini. But then I'd fall apart, not understanding why my little butternut squash had to go away.
grief when you're not letting yourself feel it and you're instead trying to think your way out of it as an endless barrage of questions that can't be answered. Why? What if? When will it be over? How much of this is hormonal, genetics, epigenetics, and on and on? I can't imagine that I woke up April 22nd, 2016, the due date, and that I was glad there wasn't a baby to take care of because I was hungover. I was drinking to not feel any feelings about the fact that there was not a baby to take care of. I was drinking so that I could fall asleep at night. I was drinking to pass the time I was too anxious to fill. Liz's vulnerabilities are not going away. Ever since I lost the baby, at some point during the day, I find myself in an alternate future as the parent to a living child of whatever age the kid would be that day. Every day there's a ghost of this idea, and every day I pretend to be glad. Glad. What a boring word. Glad. Every time I pretend to myself that I'm glad that I don't have another human to take care of. Some days it's true. Some days I'm happy to stay up late watching trashy TV and drinking wine, waking up whenever I want to. Other days I'm leveled by a sadness that is incapable of being present for another's needs in a responsible way. But on those days I'm, I'm not glad. I'm more likely honoring the felt and perceived depth of the loss that snakes through time. It slithers. It slithers through time in a really unpredictable way. It's predictably unsettling. Losing my baby devastated me. It made me feel like a creative failure all around. I've had so many false starts with creative projects, scripts, and artwork that I never fully realized. For whatever reason, I lose interest or nobody else is interested. I've been rejected from script competitions, agents, managers, showrunners, literary journals, magazines, you name it, they've said no. The orange chakra is related to creative and procreative energies. My orange chakra is messed up. All of this writerly rejection and medical trauma hang out in me and I want to let it all go. I want to be vibrant and healthy. I want to be creatively fulfilled. The irony is I have so much creative energy. So where do I put it? Where do I put it? After the loss, when I thought about suicide, it didn't scare me. It was a calming idea, in fact. It felt relieving to imagine an end to the pain, a blankness. That was the attraction, no more earthly-bound things to feel or attend to. I like to think that it's valid to want, to, to want an end to certain narratives. That's part of the fantasy we're fed by romantic comedies or Disney princesses or it's not even happily ever after I'm talking about it's the idea that a satisfied stasis is available attainable 
A lot of TV shows have this fantasy. Even a murderous cop drama is about the relief attained by overcoming evil. Makeover shows, Queer Eye, or No Demo Reno. People are going to sweep in and redesign your life and bring a contented functionality to you forever and ever. That there is this feeling that you can achieve if you unlock certain levels of this video game called life. Just because you come through something doesn't mean where you come through on the other side is going to remain. Lasting relief. Is there such a thing? I felt obliterated. Nothing to hold on to. Sadness. Devastation. Dreams crushed. Babies lost. I cried a lot. I had to wait five days for the doctors to take the baby out. Suck it out. All the pregnancy-holding Iyengar yoga sequences I worked on held onto that baby with all my might. But it had trisomy 16, extra chromosomes, and those babies usually die in the first trimester. We told everyone immediately, texted them, so that I wouldn't get any sneak attacks. I had one a few months later. I would have been seven months, you know, really showing, and someone in yoga asked when I was due, and I told her I lost the baby. That would have been born in April, and it was February, and neither of us knew how to act. It was hard to say the baby was dead. For a long time, I kept asking myself, how much do I need a child to feel at home? Is a parental role necessary for me to fully create a home, to provide for a needy, tiny being? Do I need to do that? Is that how I know what home is? Or do I just create that for myself? And what does that look like? My yoga teachers have been guiding me to be at home in my own body. And I feel like I've had some kind of spiritual awakening, but I'm getting farther away from it. And I wonder if I'll ever become nostalgic for the pain of my loss. Accepting the pain and sadness is new for me. I've thought and felt those feelings for as long as I can remember crying and hoping that I could and would be soothed by another person, but the depth of my feelings has mostly alienated other people. I was banished to my room until I could calm down. The pain of witnessing my emotions was outsourced to the confines of four bedroom walls. And I had to learn how to self-seethe. I mean self-soothe. Where does one develop empathy? And what about a resolve to find comfort for oneself? I've learned to self-soothe. I don't want to be overwhelmed by suffering and sadness anymore. Accepting it, accepting that it will always be there has provided some kind of release. I guess that's Buddhism, really. 
can I continue to accept that I might be alone in my feelings, that I can and I will be? And what does that look like? Strength, empowerment, whimpering in solitude, but a hopeful heart, courage. When you have no choice, when life and body and emotional circumstances are what they are, when you can't change anything and you have to accept who you are and what you are going through, it's then that conscious healing might commence. Liz steps onto stage. The stage lights blind her. She can't see into the dark audience of one. Name and monologue, please. Uh, Liz Hansen? I'm auditioning for the role of glad, sad woman. This monologue is from a play I wrote called Miscarriages, Schmiscarriages. And this is the scene where our heroine Judy reflects about why she and her ex broke up and what she dreams of next. Uh, I'm I'm reaching into my pants pocket and I'm taking out a gold ring. Oh, what's that doing in there? See, it's a ring I bought for myself when I realized my ex wasn't ever going to propose to me. I thought I threw it into the ocean when we broke up, but I guess I've thrown away too much already. Hopes, dreams, the idea of being a mom and having a family. See, as a woman, it's hard enough already. Okay, that's quite enough. Thank you. Next. But there's, there's, there's more, sir. Got what I needed. Thank you. But there's a story and, and things will happen to her that I haven't gotten to yet. Clear the stage, hon. She puts her hand over her eyes, trying to shield enough light so she can glimpse the man. You'll be sorry, sir. Glad sad woman was written for me. I'd be the best glad sad woman you'd ever know. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like to subscribe to this essay series or find me, Liz Hansen, you can do so at demisery.com, D-E-M-I-S-E-R-Y.com. Don't forget to be nice to yourself. Healing wishes to all.